So like I said, my name is Sam. Um, if I haven't met you yet, um, that's who I am. So if you hear people talking about Pastor Sam, that's probably me. Um, and uh, my job here is family discipleship pastor, so I do a lot of different things. So it would be not a surprise if you heard my name um, in all kinds of circles, probably talking badly about me. That's okay. I'm used to it. Um, but here's the deal. When Darren's gone, um, he oftentimes asks me to step in and preach for him. And so for the next couple of weeks, uh, Darren and Julie are going to be in Italy. Um, I believe they're celebrating their anniversary. That's wonderful for them. And I'm just a little bit jealous. Um, but I get to be here with all of you, which is great. That makes me really happy. And so um, we're going to pick up kind of right where Pastor Darren left off last week um, in this series called Safe Haven. Um, and really this idea is that um, the world is a dangerous place kind of a violent place, but our homes shouldn't be unsafe. Our homes should be refuges. They should be places where we can go and retreat from the world and find comfort and find joy and find hope and find peace and find rest. But how do we make our homes safe places? Because for so many of us, our homes were not safe places, and we don't really know how to create those safe places, and the world has come in and tried to attack our homes. And and last week, Pastor Darren kind of kicked this off by saying, look, if you want to have a safe home. If you want to have a safe haven, you have to be a safe person. And that is so, so true that what we really, really need is safe people in our lives, safe relationships in our lives. But, but it's difficult to be a safe person. And, and you'll remember, uh, Pastor Darren, some of you will remember if you were here last week, Pastor Darren gave you this challenge um, to ask someone, ask a family member, ask a relative, what's it like to be on the other side of me? Anybody ask that question this week? Anybody not want to tell me the answer? All right, that's okay. I don't want to tell you my answer either, right? But it's a great question to ask, to kind of evaluate, am I a safe person? Is this a safe place for my family? Um, And I would encourage you, if you haven't asked that question yet, to ask it. Because here's the thing. Knowing the truth about it just lets you deal with the truth. Keeping it hidden just means you stay unsafe. But once you know, you can bring it into the light. And God wants to redeem it. He wants to change the story. He wants to make the story beautiful again. He wants to redeem that story. And that's true for every single one of us. And maybe you're like me. And you grew up in a pretty great home, two parents, they stayed married your entire childhood, they're still married to this day, and really, your childhood was, was pretty decent. I mean, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't amazing, you didn't have, you know, everything you ever wanted, you know, we didn't have Xboxes or any of that stuff, but, but it was a good childhood. My parents were, were good parents, we went to church, we were, we were just a good, solid family. I mean, I wasn't abused, I wasn't neglected, nothing really terrible happened to me as a kid. My parents weren't perfect, and and there were times when when things would happen, and my dad would lose his temper, and he might scream at me, and and, and yeah, I've got got a few little scars from that season, but but it's not a tragic story. Maybe that's your story, and you're saying, you know what, My, my story really isn't that bad. That's my story too, but here's the thing. Your story isn't perfect. And without that perfection, we still have scars. We still have wounds. We still have things that we bring into our parenting. We still have these these, um, things that that we can't quite get past that make us not completely safe all the time for our kids. And, And I know this because, like I said, my childhood was pretty good. But every once in a while, I find myself losing it with my kids. And I become unsafe. And maybe something happened when you were a kid. Maybe it happened when you were a teenager. Maybe it happened as an adult. Maybe it happened when you were deployed. Maybe it happened, I don't know. But none of us can be safe because we all have stories. We all have wounds. We all have things. And again, maybe your story is like mine and it's not that bad. 
Or maybe your story is like this woman I know. Her name is Sherry. And Sherry had a decent childhood, but she always felt like the oddball in her family. She always felt like she never really belonged. She never really felt loved in her family. But God gave her a great friend through elementary school. And this friend's name was Donna, and they were best friends. They did everything together. And, and Donna was, was a friend to Sherry, and, and, and they grew up together. But when, when Sherry turned 10 years old, Donna's dad got transferred to Denver. She lost her friend, and once again, she felt abandoned and alone. And Sherry had really no friends at that point. And about the time that she turned 11, she noticed that she was developing much quicker than most of the other girls in her class. And this drew the attention of certain young men. Uh, One young man in particular who was uh, three or four years older than she was, who was about 14 or 15 years old, really uh, took a liking to Sherry and really started paying attention to her. And she loved that. She loved the attention. She loved that she was being loved or that she felt loved, that she felt accepted. But this was an unsafe relationship for her. And this young man and his family were involved in running drugs from Mexico to Grand Junction, and she soon got drawn into that life. By the time she was 12 years old, she was completely addicted to LSD. Desperate for someone to love her, desperate for someone to care for her. At that point in her life, over the next couple of years, she would become more and more desperate, looking for a way out, considering suicide, considering um, all kinds of options, any way to escape this pain and finally feel accepted again. And maybe your story is a little bit more like Sherry's story. But either way, God wants to redeem that story. He wants to make it whole again. But if we're going to be redeemed, we've got to know how. How do we get there? How How do we let God in? How do we allow this thing to happen? What do we do to find redemption? And so today we're going to look at a story in the book of Ruth. So we'll put the, the core text that we're going to look at up on the screen. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Ruth chapter 1. We're kind of going to skim through and then stop at certain points. Uh, it's a short story. It's a great story. Um, if you need something to read in your Bible this week, I would highly recommend just read the book of Ruth over and over again. You can read the whole story in about 15 minutes. Read it every day this week. You'll see something new in it every time. It's an amazing story of God intervening in the lives of these people. But today we're going to look at this story, and we're going to look at how God redeemed this particular situation. All right? So here we go. As we open uh, the book of Ruth, right at the beginning of the story, we have this woman. Her name's Naomi. And Naomi is married to a man, and they've got some property, and they live in Bethlehem. But a famine strikes. And so they move from Bethlehem to a a country called Moab. Now what you got to understand is that Israelites and Moabites, they don't really get along. They don't don't mix too well together, okay? They kind of don't like each other very well. It's just kind of a cultural thing uh, for them that they just kind of have decided to hate each other, right? But but they decide, hey, there's a famine. We don't know what to do. We're going to move over here because we think that we can grow some crops over here, that we can be okay over here. So they move to Moab. They have two sons. And then Naomi's husband dies. The two sons get married to two Moabite women, and then the two sons die. And so here's Naomi with her two daughters-in-law in in a foreign country, a place that she doesn't belong, with no husband, no sons, and no hope for a future. So you got to understand, in that day, for a woman, you couldn't own property. 
You couldn't do business transactions. There was, there was no way for them to survive. And they certainly couldn't be safe. They couldn't protect themselves in that day. And, and so these three women are now completely alone and stuck and desperate. And there's nothing that they can do. And so Naomi says to these daughters-in-law, whom she loves, she says, Hey, look, guys, there's no way I can provide for you. There's no way I can take care of you. You should go back to your own families. They'll take care of you. They'll protect you. Okay? And that's where we're going to pick up the story. And here's what we read in Ruth chapter 1, verse 13. No, my daughters, it is, this is Naomi talking. No, my daughters, it is more bitter for you than for me. Because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah, that's one of the daughters-in-law, kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Now, now we've got to stop for just a second. Because this word clung is an incredibly important word in this sentence. What, what, what you need to understand is that in Genesis chapter 3, this word appears there as well. And in Genesis chapter 3, here's what it says. A man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, becoming one with her. And so this isn't like a, like, like this is what we do in church, right? This is what we do. In fact, I did this probably 15 times today. I'm out in the lobby over here, right? In fact, I did it just before I came on the stage, right? And, and that we see people in church and we love the people at church and we want to be friendly. And so we do a side hug, right? It's a, it's a side hug. It's a safe hug, right? And, and let me just tell you, the public service announcement here, okay? That is the appropriate way to hug in church is a side hug. That's a safe way to hug in church. You don't want to be doing like a full frontal with a leg wrap, okay? That's, <laughs> save that for your homes, please, okay? But, but here's the thing, right? This isn't the way that Ruth clung to Naomi. This wasn't like a, hey man, I'm going with you. This was a don't leave me. I'm connected to you. There's no way I'm leaving. And Ruth goes on to say this. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. And Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Because the first thing we got to know, if we're going to see stories redeemed, the first thing we've got to understand is that we have to fight for relationships. We've got to fight for it. We've got to say, there's no way I'm quitting on you. There's no way I'm abandoning you. I don't care how ugly it gets. I don't care how messy it gets. I don't care how bad it is. I am not walking away from you. I'm in it till death. We gotta fight for relationships. And in our culture, that is unheard of, right? Because this is how we do relationships today. Ooh, ooh, I don't like this thing that they put was posted on Facebook. Let me correct them in the comments section. I'll just make sure they know that they're not right, right? Oh, you didn't like my response? Unfriend. I'm just saying. Right? But guys, if we're going to see it redeemed, we've got to fight for it. There's a woman in our church. She's on staff here, Tammy Barlow. Tammy lost her husband uh, last year, and uh, we were all, all devastated to see Kelly go home to be with the Lord, a man we love desperately. Uh, but in talking to, to Tammy about that season, what she'll tell you was the most significant thing to her wasn't the meals that people brought. It wasn't the cards. The, it wasn't the flowers that people sent to the service. It wasn't the words that happened at the funeral. What was the most significant thing to her in that season 
is the people who sat with her, who sat with her in the living room and wept, who sat there while she cried, not, not, like, a, not like a little sniffle cry, but the ugly cry, right? Who, who stayed beside her no matter what, who said, I am not giving up on you. I will stay here no matter what it takes, no matter how long it takes. I'm not giving up on you. I'm with you in this, being present, guys. We have to fight that way for relationships. And guys, look, Naomi wasn't like the best person to be around right now. I mean, she just said, the Lord has turned his hand against me. It's better for you to go. Let me go die by myself. I mean, clearly, Naomi is not a fun person to be around right now. But Ruth says, I don't care. I'm not quitting you. I'm fighting for the relationship. Guys, we have to fight for relationships. And I feel like God wants me to tell you this this morning. Because I know that some of you know what it's like to fight for your brother. I know some of you know what it's like to fight for the guy in your unit. I know that some of you know what it's like to risk your life for them. And truthfully, sometimes it's easier to fight for your brother. Sometimes it's easier to fight for the person who's fighting with you than it is to fight for your family. And I've been there, guys. I've been there. I, I, I mean, I've been that guy that's gotten the call at two in the morning and said, man, I, I, need, I need your help. I need to talk to you. I need something. I need somebody. Will you please come? And, I, and I'll be there. Right? I get up in the middle of the night and I'll go. I'll go to the hospital to spend time with them. I'll go to, to take care of their needs. I'll, I'll go to buy them you know, fast food or whatever. I, I mean, I, I'll do what it takes unless you're moving and then I'm out. But I'm just like, but I've been there, right? I mean, I'm that guy. You can trust me. You can count on me for my friends. I've been that guy. And in the same week that I have fought for those relationships, I have ignored my family. And then I wonder why my wife doesn't like me. Look, guys, we have to fight for the, I mean, you might think, hey, she said, yes, we're stuck. I don't think so, man. You gotta fight for that. You gotta fight for that every day of your life to stay connected, to stay in relationship, to make sure that she knows you are not going anywhere, to make sure that he knows he is the only one for you, to make sure your kids know there's nothing that you could do that would cause me to not love you. You have to fight for that every single day. We've gotta fight for relationships. All right. So Ruth fights for the relationship. And they move back to Bethlehem. And they're still kind of distraught. They're still poor. They still have nothing. And so Ruth, instead of staying at home with Naomi, decides, hey, Naomi's like lost her mind here. She's, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to go find some food. So Ruth goes out and starts gleaning from the fields nearby. Now what that means is um, she would go behind the workers and pick up what they left. She'd pick up the grain uh, from the fields that the workers left. And in Israel, this was actually the law that the, um, the workers would leave the grain, that they couldn't go back a second time. They couldn't go back and pick up what they dropped. This was there for, it was like their own little social security program, right? It, this is how they provided for the poor and the needy, is by leaving these things. And so Ruth goes to the field and she gleans um, in this one particular field. It belongs to a, name, a man named Boaz. And as she's gleaning in the field, Boaz sees her and says, isn't this the Moabite woman who came back with Ruth? And they say, yeah, that's, that's her. She's gleaning the field. She's, she's taking care of Naomi. She's, she's doing it for her. And, and Boaz said to Ruth, don't go to any field but mine. I'll make sure you're safe. I'll make sure you're protected. Always come to my field. In fact, follow uh, the workers around They'll make sure that nobody hurts you. They'll make sure that nobody protects you. And then Boaz went to the workers and said, hey, hey, 
drop a little extra for Ruth, right? He saw her situation and stepped into it and said, I'm going to care. I'm going I'm to do something about this. I'm going to care for this woman who's caring for Naomi. I'm going I'm to do the right thing for her, right? And this is God intervening in Ruth and Naomi's life. He's setting up this story. And pretty soon, Ruth finds out that Boaz is a member of their family, a member of their clan. Now, the way that things worked back then is that if you were a woman and you inherited the property of your husband, you couldn't actually do anything with that, but you could sell it. But you could only sell it to a family member because the land had to stay with the clan so that the name of the dead person would be continued on. And if you had a daughter, then that daughter had to marry the person who was redeeming the land so that you could, your son could be replaced essentially, and the family name would continue on. That's just how the law worked. So Ruth finds out that Boaz is their family member, and Boaz is a man who uh, clearly he has some fields, he has some property, he's probably a middle-class kind of guy, and says, "Hey, hey, Boaz could be the answer to our prayers. Boaz could be the guy to save us. He has the means, he has the ability, he has the family connection, he could be the guy to save us. And so Ruth, Naomi tells Ruth to do this thing that is absolutely crazy, and Ruth does it, and I can't even describe it to you, we're just going to read it. She says this, wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Is that weird? Like, it's not just me, right? That's like a weird thing. Like, I've been married 13 years. I'm pretty sure if I went into our bedroom and uncovered my wife's feet and just laid there, like, she'd be like, what's wrong with you? You lost your mind. What, what is happening right now? Right? I mean, this is, it's like a weird thing, right? And so I, I did a little bit of research on this, and here's what I found out. In that culture, apparently, this is a way that you could propose marriage. That doesn't make it less weird, I'm just saying. <laughs> but basically, Naomi says to Ruth, hey, go propose to this guy. Now, you've got to understand, Ruth had some conversations with this man but there's been no conversations about what does our life look like in the future. I mean, this isn't like, this isn't like on The Bachelor, right? Where she tries to pull him aside and be like, hey, so what are you thinking? Man? Am I getting a rose or not, right? That, that's not how this is going down. This is like, hey, I kind of sort of know this guy and he was kind to me once, but I really don't know where this is going or if there's anything even there for it, it to develop, right? And she goes into the threshing floor in the middle of the night and lays down next to him. This is crazy. It's crazy. And it was risky. See, Boaz, waking up in the middle of the night, a pretty girl next to him, could have done whatever he wanted to. And in that day, in that culture, by that law, Ruth would have been at fault for that, and she probably would have been stoned to death if that had happened. He also could have just dismissed her quietly, sweetie, no. I mean, he could have. Or it could have been really ugly. And he could have publicly, publicly shamed her. He could have said, seriously, you, a Moabite woman, are you kidding me? Don't you know? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know my status? Don't you know that I have standing in this community? What are you thinking? There's no way I would ever be with someone like you. And Boaz would have been okay 
in the culture to do any of those things. But it's not what he did. He told her he would take care of it in the morning. And the next day, he did take care of it. But what we learn from Ruth in this moment is that if we are going to see stories redeemed, we have to humble ourselves before the Redeemer. Ruth humbled herself before the Redeemer. She said, I don't know if you're willing to have me. I don't know what this is going to do. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know what the future holds. But you are the one who can save me. Will you do it? And look, guys, Jesus Christ is the one who can save you. And if your story is going to be redeemed, then you've got to humble yourself before Jesus and say, look, man, I don't know what you're going to call me to do. I don't know where you're going to lead me. I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know if I can trust you yet. But but look, I know that you can save me. And so I'm asking you if you will save me. Humble yourself before the Redeemer. But Boaz doesn't dismiss her. Boaz looks at her with love. And the next day, He goes to the city gate, the place where they did all the business transactions, and he sits down because there was a problem with this plan. See, there was somebody who had a claim on the land before Boaz. There was a closer family member who had the opportunity to buy the land first. He had dibs. So Boaz goes to this man and says, hey, I thought you should know Naomi is selling the property. You have first claim. I thought I'd let you know and see if you wanted to purchase it. And the guy at first says, absolutely, I want to buy this. Of course I want to buy Are you kidding me? Naomi's distraught. She's probably going to sell it for a steal. I'm going to grab this land. I'm going to be able to expand my property. This is a great thing that has happened to me. Of course I want to buy the land. I want to have it for myself. And then Boaz says, but here's the thing. If you buy the land, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite woman. And You have to marry her and have a child with her so that the name of that family will continue on that property. And the guy says, I'm out. I can't do it. Here's what it says. He says, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. He was afraid of the shame that might come on his family. He was afraid of what people might think because he married a Moabite woman. He was afraid of what the world would say about him. He was afraid that he would, he would endanger what he already had because he brought this shameful thing, this Moabite woman, into his home, into his family. He said, no way, man, I can't do it. I can't risk it. There's no way I can take all of that on. And here's what you need to understand. While this guy who has a claim on the land, who has the first claim to the benefit, while he rejects it because of Ruth, Boaz says, no, 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 you don't understand. I want Ruth, and so I'm willing to redeem the land. Do you get the difference? One guy says, what's it going to benefit for me to have this? Oh, I have to take on this person? No way. And Boaz says, man, I get, I want this person. I will do whatever it takes to take this person under my wing, to love this person, to bring them under, to redeem this person. I will do whatever it takes. If that means buying the land, then yes, I will buy the land. And that's what Boaz does. And what you got to know is that Boaz is a picture of Jesus Christ who says to you, I don't want what you have. I don't want what you bring to the table. I don't want you for anything that you can do for me. I don't want you to use you or abuse you in any way. I just want you. And I'm willing to do whatever 
it takes to restore my relationship with you. And Jesus did whatever it took to restore the relationship with us. He lived a sinless life, but he willingly went to the cross and died in your place and died in my place and took on the sin of the world upon himself. He paid the debt that was owed, the cost of redeeming us. He paid it with his own blood so that he could redeem us, so that he could restore us, so that we could have relationship with him. But he didn't do it because he wants something from you. He just wants you because he loves you unconditionally. You know, we throw that word around in church a lot, unconditional. It literally means without conditions, which means Jesus loves you not because you're going to change your behavior. Jesus loves you not because you're going to do something for him, not because you're going to live this great life, not because you're going to stop sinning, not because you're going to do all this stuff. He he wants you to do those things because it's a better life for him, but he doesn't love you because of them. He doesn't love you for anything that you bring to the table. He just loves you. And you need to know that. Because every one of us lives with fear every single day because of things that have happened in the past, things that have happened in our story. We carry around shame and guilt and fear, and that sometimes is how we parent, and that sometimes is how we engage in relationship with our spouses, and that sometimes is how we engage in relationships with our coworkers and with our neighbors. And we've come from this place of fear and shame and guilt, and we cannot be safe people. But there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear and when you know that Jesus loves you not for what you bring but he just loves you perfectly unconditionally I mean when you know it in your heart that fear begins to be healed that shame goes away suddenly you have the strength to love well suddenly you have the ability to be a safe person and all of a sudden you can stand before your spouse you can stand in front of your kids and you can be a safe place because you are safe in the arms of the redeemer and so you've got to know that Jesus loves you unconditionally and once you come to terms with that and you surrender to that he will redeem your story. See, Boaz and Ruth get married. And they have a son whose name is Obed. And Obed has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David. And David would become the greatest king Israel ever knew. And not only that, but David's great, 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 great grandson would be Jesus Christ himself. Jesus redeemed the story of Boaz and Ruth through Boaz. He redeemed the story, and he's still in the business of redeeming stories. I told you about this woman named Sherry. I told you about her friend named Donna. Well, Donna didn't give up on Sherry. Donna continued to write to Sherry, continued to pursue a relationship with Sherry, even though she was strung out and really kind of abandoning all hope of that. One summer, before, right before they started their freshman year of high school, Donna sent a letter and a flyer for a camp, a Christian camp in the mountains. 
Now, now Sherry had no interest in attending a Christian camp, but what she did have an interest in is getting away from her parents and from her family. And so she agreed to go to the camp, to the camp under the pretense that this young man who, who she was involved with would meet her at the rest stop where the bus would stop to get gas. She would get off the bus, get in his car, and drive to Mexico. That was the plan. God had a different plan. See, on the way to that rest stop, the young man was arrested for a DUI. He never showed up. Sherry got on the bus, having nowhere else to go, and she went to the camp. And she tried to recover from this addiction for a week with, with no drugs, with no medical help, with nothing. She miraculously, God met her there and allowed her to get through this season, this week of, of just absolute torment as she's coming off of these drugs. And on the last night of the camp, there was a preacher who got up and said something like, there's a God who loves you. And it was a plan for your life. Sherry had never heard that before. She certainly didn't believe it. She went to her counselor after the, the message time was over and said, well, tell me more about this. Tell me, tell me, help me understand who this God is. And, and the counselor began to un, uh, explain what Jesus had done, what, who Jesus was, what he had done for her, how he loved her. And she said, okay. Okay, look, here's the deal. I don't know about all this, but I'm willing to give it a shot. So Jesus, I need you to show me in the next month. I'm giving you a month to show me that you have a plan for my life. (laughs) She left the camp. They went to visit an aunt right after that. Just so happens that the neighbor of the aunt was an addictions counselor who met Sherry and for the next couple of weeks walked with her through the recovery process of coming off of these drugs. And then uh, a couple of weeks later, she went to high school as a freshman. And and in that time, um, they would partner a senior girl with a freshman girl, kind of like a sister. And that that sister would walk you through, helping you find your classes in your locker and figuring out how the lunch schedule worked and all of that. And so this woman, Sherry, was assigned to a woman named Kathy who loved the Lord with all of her heart. And Kathy began to pick her up and take her to Bible study and picked her up and took her to Bible club. And Kathy invested in her life in a way that nobody else had up to that point and showed her who Jesus really was and what Jesus really had for her. And that summer, Sherry went to work at a VBS and she fell in love with kids. When she graduated high school, she went to Bible college, met a young man, started a family. A few years later, she would go back to school finish her teaching degree, and then choose to work in the poorest school in the city so that those kids would never doubt that somebody loved them. There's just one problem with the story. She wanted kids. All her life she wanted kids. And she prayed and prayed and asked God and asked God, God, would you please give me children? Would you please let me have kids? Would you please bless me in this way? Doctors told her it would never happen. But she prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And she said, God, if you would give me a child, I will dedicate his life to you. I will give him back to you. In October, on October 20th, 1979, my mom gave birth to me.
wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Jesus' intervention. I wouldn't be here if people hadn't refused to give up on my mom. I wouldn't be here if God hadn't redeemed her story. And listen, God is still in the business of redeeming stories. Some of you need your story redeemed today. Some of you are, are sitting there thinking, there's no way, like it's too broken, it's too messed up, there's too much stuff, there's too much baggage. No, there's not. God wants to bring you into his story. He wants to rewrite it. He wants to make you a safe person and give you hope and a future. And he wants his perfect love to cast out all of those fears from your life.